All right, amen. All right, so we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. Popular sermon, I mean verse. All right, I'll do this like this. Maybe that'll work. Wow, that's very small. Okay, Matthew chapter five, uh, chapter five, verse thirteen. Now, um, like I said, we're we're on sanctification. We're working our way through the order salutis, justification, regeneration. Now we're in sanctification, and um, what I want to try to do is I want to try to look at sanctification as it relates to us and the world. That seems to be the theme of what I'm doing. How does sanctification, how, you know, sanctification is basically in a simple, simple man's term is living the life that God wants you to live, basically. That's sanctification, right? And it's more nuanced than that, but in essence, it boils down to that. You live the life that God wants you to live, that's sanctification. There's more details to it, and Pastor Bolden, I'm sure, will explain all of that in very long, excruciatingly detailed series of sermons. Um, <laughs> but sanctification as it relates to the world, us to the world. So Jesus, in chapter 5, verse 13, we're going to read it, he says the following. He says, you're the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your, sh- let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, what Jesus is, is, you know, Jesus, this is part of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is basically explaining, is giving this long sermon about the, the, the type of religion, so to speak, that he, that he uh, uh, believes in, or he's teaching. He lays down his whole teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. So as part of that, he's, he tells his disciples, you're the salt of the earth, you are the, the light of the world, you're the city um, set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Now, in, in, um, I've been reading, um, this last couple of weeks, I've been reading a book called John Wesley's Sermons on the Sermon on the Mount. And it's basically 13 sermons of John Wesley on the Sermon on the Mount. And in his fourth sermon, he's dealing with this same text, being salt and light. And this is what he says. He says, first... I shall endeavor to show that Christianity is essentially a social religion. And to turn it into a solitary religion is to destroy it. By Christianity, I mean that method of worshiping God, which is here revealed by Jesus Christ. When I say that Christianity is a social religion, he says, I mean that... um, Christianity cannot exist at all without society, without living and conversing with other men. 
In other words, the Christian faith, what makes it the Christian faith is that it's lived out outside in society. Christianity does not exist by yourself, on your own. It exists as you live it out in society by living and conversing with other men. Now, uh, part of my quote-unquote theme, I guess, that I've been pushing is this thing that Christ is king, right? You hear me say that all the time. Christ is king. He has a government. His government is about all governments. He's our king. He's our ruler. He's our president. Well, the reason for that is because the Bible describes the kingdom of God as moving into the world and, be, and changing the world. See, what happened at the resurrection when Jesus ascends unto heaven and he's crowned and he sends down his spirit to his church, the world begins to change from that moment on. This is the, the whole purpose the whole purpose of the apostles, the reason why they were persecuted, is because they went around the world proclaiming that Christ is king. That's not a big deal today, but they lived in the Roman Empire. You have to understand that the Romans were paid. See, the Romans didn't care who you worship. You could worship Jesus. You could worship a tree. You can worship this God. They, they didn't care about that. As long as... Caesar was Lord. The Romans worshipped their government. In fact, Caesar is Lord was the slogan of the empire. Kaiser Curios, that's the Greek for it. Kaiser Curios means Christ, I mean, Jesus, I mean, Caesar is Lord. When, when, you, when you walked around Rome and you ran into a soldier, the soldier would ask, Kaiser Curios, Caesar Lord, and you had to answer yes or no. If you were yes, then you're fine. If you say no, you got into some trouble. Well, the Christian, the early church, took that slogan, Kaiser Curios, and they changed it to Christos Curios, Christ is Lord. So here you have a group of people going around the Roman Empire announcing that not Caesar, but Christ is Lord. So we are not worshiping. We have no allegiance to Caesar. We have allegiance to Christ. Because the Roman emperor, you, do you remember when Jesus, um, uh, he's, he's asked if they should pay taxes, and Jesus is like, bring me a coin. And then they give him a coin, and they, that coin there, um, he asks, who is this guy? And they're like, that's Caesar Augustus. And then he says, render unto Caesar. Well, that coin, the Bible calls it, the Bible says it's a denarius. That's a, the, the Roman coin, was a, that's where you get a Spanish word, dinero, denarius. Well, that Roman coin had a picture of Caesar Augustus, and underneath it said, Caesar Augustus, son of the living God. That was his title. Caesar Augustus, the emperor of Rome, was the son of God. And they worshipped him. There's a group of people now that are proclaiming that Christ is the Son of God and that he is Lord. That was a political problem that's happening. That's why the early church was persecuted. They did not care if they went around preaching Jesus. When they went around saying that Christ was Lord and he was king above all kings, that got them in trouble now. Because your allegiance is not to our emperor. 
So you're outside of the system now. So the, the, the Christian faith, that's what I'm saying, the Christian faith, their holiness was shown in their interaction with society. In their time, that brought about persecution. You see what I'm saying? But when the faith was in Jerusalem amongst themselves, it stayed there. When persecution came and the, and, and the Christians spread out throughout the Roman Empire, now they became witnesses. See? Their, their life, their holiness was shown in that interaction with the society in which they lived. Now, when Jesus was preaching, Jesus, Jesus tells the Pharisees, there's two commandments. The Pharisees had 600 and whatever commandments. Jesus says, no, there's two. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You love your neighbor as yourself, right? In those two lies the law and the prophets. The summary of the Old Testament he puts it in a small phrase. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor of yourself. One is personal. You love your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's worship. That's personal. The second one is social. You love your neighbor as yourself. Holiness has two faces. It's your personal relationship with God and your relationship with your fellow man. John Wesley called it uh, uh, social holiness. That's how he called it. You have personal holiness and you have social holiness. He also called it inward holiness and outward holiness, meaning you live you know, your life before God, but you also live before men. And your holiness, your worship of God, is shown in your relation with men. That's why Wesley said with Christianity is a social religion. To make a solitary is to destroy it because the worship of God comes this way outward, right? So the question is, the question is, um, when we're saved, we've, we went through the whole subject of justification and in Ephesians uh, chapter 2 and in our preachings, we, we labored in telling you that you're not justified by works. Your works has nothing to do with your salvation. But you're justified for works. So the Apostle Paul, Ephesians chapter 2, you guys remember Ephesians? <laughs> Ephesians chapter 2 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God not as a result of works, so that one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're not justified by works, we're justified for works. See what I'm saying? So in your justification must be followed by works, by good works. That's what sanctification is about. So I want to talk about um, uh, this social aspect of our sanctification. Um, in the Bible, you have a world that has fallen. You have sin that has come in. 
You have a Savior that comes and dies. You have a kingdom that is established. And then you have a, a church that is ushered in a change that begins to happen. That's the whole story of the Bible. And all throughout the Old Testament, you see all these prophecies. Like in Isaiah chapter 9, it says that a child is born to us, a son is given to us, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David, over his kingdom, to establish it, to uphold it with justice, with righteousness from this time forevermore, the zeal of the Lord will do this. So the government of God resting upon his shoulders is ushered into this world through the church. So at, at the upper room begins the new phase of the world. The world begins to change. For the better. There's so much today that we take for granted. We take everything for granted today. All the things that we have today are built upon 2,000 years of Christian sacrifice. The, the, our ancestors, our Christian ancestors, and they're living out their life and living out the Bible in, the, in, in society gave us the world that we have today. We take almost all of this for granted. Let me give you an example. I read, every so often I read this writer, and he's, uh, uh, he's not even close to being a Christian. He's, he's a self-proclaimed redneck from West Virginia who lives in Mexico. <laughs> and uh, he wrote, recently he wrote an article, and he called it, uh, the name of the article is The Place of Christianity in History. This is, this is an unbeliever's, secular view of history, an honest view of history. Listen to what he says. He says, and I quote, In today's irreligious and anti-religious climate, the fashion is to dismiss Christianity as a crude superstition and to babble wisely about the separation of church and state. This is unfortunate since Christianity was the heart and soul of the greatest civilization the world has seen. Those who know nothing of it cannot understand the last 2,000 years and how the world came to be. Renegade Jews founded Christianity. Most Jews wish they had not. As a sort of heresy that got out of control, it lost all its resemblance to Judaism and eventually stretched across Europe, Russia, North and South America, Australia, the Byzantine Empire. In all of these, it shaped the culture, art, philosophy, literature, the very framework of the mind. Much of it was superb and remains unsurpassed. The traveler of today may have seen the gorgeous, the gorgeous churches of Cusco and the Peruvian Andes, Norman churches in Sicily and the Notre Dame, Salisbury, the wonderful cathedral of Barcelona, the Hagia Sophia, the ceremony of the Russian Orthodox, the artistry, the engineering needing to build any of them in times without structural steel are astonishing. In Mexico today, town after town, one finds the churches on the central plaza, all different, many splendid places of quiet and meditation. So what happened at the resurrection is the new world was ushered in. 
much of what you know today that you enjoy today is a product of Christian civilization. But Christianity is not a thing that walks around. Christianity is God's people living out his word in real life. That's all Christianity is. We have given the world that we live in today was paid for by our ancestors. And a secular man, a secular man that takes an honest look at history can see that and point it out. Remember what Jesus said, they will see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Any honest heathen can look at the history of the Christian church and said, look at what they have done in this world. They made the world, believe it or not, the world is better today than it was 2,000 years ago. And the history of the world without the church would be horrific, horrific in comparison. He goes on to say, uh, this is kind of funny, he says, um, architectures was just the first syllable of a long paragraph. From Christendom came classical music, much of it's Christian. Uh, St. Matthew's Passion, Handel's Messiah, the whole panoply of secular music and Christian forms. The aesthetic element was pronounced not just in music and architecture, but in painting and literature, in nominated manuscripts. One may argue whether Defoe or Cervantes invented the novel or France of America invented the airplane, but both came from Christendom. We made the world, God, through his people, made the world a better place. That's sanctification. That is the social aspect of sanctification. See, these men who came before us were ushered into a world of paganism, persecution, sacrifice, and death, and set out from that moment on to faithfully preach the word of God and give up their lives little by little. You see, the, 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 you know what I love about Christianity is that it didn't came into the world in a great palace it was just sped out into the world from the upper room, tumbled into the streets of Rome, and met with violence and persecution, and pushed through, and it won. See, the Apostle Paul stands by himself in the, in the midst of the world, and he has Judaism and the monopoly they thought they had on God. They had all the Greek philosophy, the philosophy of the Greeks, and they had all the military power of the Roman Empire, and he stands and faces all of it, and he won. He got rid of all of them on his own. He stood before all the governors of Rome and spoke to them boldly at the risk of his own life. Why? He was a holy man, that's why. He lived a life of righteousness. That's why. That's why Wesley says, if you make Christian, Christianity is a social religion, to make it a solitary religion is to destroy it. Because it only exists in conversing and living with men. That's how Christianity, it, it, it lives within society to change it and make it better. That's part of our holiness. So we, you live, you live, you live for two reasons. Remember what Jesus said? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
You live to glorify God and to benefit mankind. That's why you exist. That's why you, you, do, you drive. That's why you go to school. I don't even want to know what you do. But that's why, that's why we exist in this world. Is for those two th- That's why nations, why Cuba exists, why America exists. America exists, Cuba, Canada, whatever country you want, to glorify God and to benefit mankind. You're either doing that or you're rebelling against that. That's why the world exists. Simple as that. You don't have a choice. That's how holiness works. Now, um, when Jesus says, um, be light, that assumes that there's darkness. Be light, what Jesus is saying, be light, is he's assuming that you're going into the midst of darkness and that your life and your word are going to lighten that darkness. And when darkness lights up, then you can see what's there. You see what I'm saying? You could be in a cave and you don't know what's there, but when you shine a light, oh, I know what's there, right? Um, many years ago, let me give you an example of some things that you take for granted. If the president of the United States were to walk into somebody's house and I don't know, grab a, 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 a woman and drag her out and marry her, you, you think he could get away with that today? He wouldn't, right? Well, about 1,700 years ago, the Roman emperor could do that and get away with it. He could do whatever he pleased. He was the law. There was a man in Rome by the name of Ambrose. He was a bishop, Bishop of Milan, in Italy. The emperor at the time, Theodosius, had some people, had a small rebellion against his rule in Thessalonica, so he sent his army and they killed 7,000 people. Men, women, children, just shut them up, 7,000 people died. Ambrose, the, the, the bishop, heard about that. He wrote a letter to the emperor. He told the emperor that what he did violated God's law and that he was wrong and that he needed to repent. So he rebuked the emperor. You have to understand how easy it would be for Theodosius to get rid of Ambrose. It would literally take, you don't even have to sign an executive order and pass it through Congress. He can just say, boom, he's gone. He read the letter. And he told Ambrose he was going to go to the cathedral in Milan to have communion. Ambrose wrote him back and says, don't bother. I don't, you're not going to step in here until the emperor cannot violate God's law. It's unheard of. A year later, Ambrose would not stand down. A year later, the emperor went to Milan to the cathedral with his entourage. So you have to understand what that meant. Entourage nowadays is a couple of dudes. Entourage in Roman period is a whole chariot, calvary, the whole thing behind him. He walks into the church. He takes out his royal robe. He takes out his insignia. He kneels down 
and ask for forgiveness. The emperor of the most powerful man in the universe is kneeling down in a cathedral asking for forgiveness. What does that mean? There's a little concept. The emperor is under the law. It's no big deal, right? That became a concept. Generation after generation later was developed into liberal democracy. The concept of rule of law is the reason why the president of the United States today cannot go and grab whoever he wants and drag him out and marry them or do whatever he pleases. Who, who gave you that? A holy man who stood up to his emperor. Did he came up with that? No. You know what he, Ambrose told the emperor? Listen, thousands of years ago there was another king. His name was David. David grabbed a, a, woman's, a, a man's woman and then killed the man to cover it up. So Nathan the prophet was sent by God to tell David, you have sinned against God and you need to repent. So what Nathan, Ambrose was not invented. He wasn't coming up with a new political theory. He was quoting scripture to the king. The, the idea that the king is under God's law has always been there. Ambrose just took his light and went... There it goes. That's what that means. I have no idea, but you, I, he's, I'm changing the future history of the world, but that's all I'm doing. I'm living out my Christian life amongst people conversing with the emperor of Rome. You see what I'm saying? You take that for granted today. You think that they came out from nowhere. No. That was laid down by our ancestors who believed God and lived out their Christian life in the world and then it stumped down at the risk of his own life. Ambrose knew this guy can kill me right now. I don't care. I'm not going to fail God and get in cahoots with a murderer. I'm going to stand down by the truth of the word of God. Whatever happens, be that as it may. You see what I'm saying? That's what we do. That's what the Christian church does. That's how we are holy in this world. And that's how change begins to happen. Now, this is very small. Um, I, w I wanted to see something else about light, but if... if um, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of verses in the Bible that deal with us being light, and I want to point out something that I thought was interesting. The Apostle Paul, in various occasions, uh, for example, in Ephesians chapter 5, he says, Walk as children of light, um, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the fruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. See, that's what light does. Now, the word for light, I, I, I just, this is very interesting. The word for light in the Greek is phos, P-H-O-S, phos. It's light in the Greek. We get our Spanish word, phosphoro. What's a phosphoro in Spanish? It's a match, right? Phosphoro means light, light carrier. That's what it means. 
Then the old days, when you think of light today, you're thinking of a light bulb, right? When you think of light in the old days, you thought of fire. That's what they had. They had a torch and they lit it up. Now, a torch needs a source, right? You don't, you don't press a button in the stick and fire comes out, right? You got to go and start it up somehow, or, and then you start that fire, and then you take your thing, and you start the fire with that. So when, when, when the Bible uses that idea of light, it's perfect, because that's how our light works. We need a source for our light. Start with Jesus. A torch can be passed around. Somebody can have a stick, you go up to him, and you light up his stick, right? Now, you, now he has light. And the more light you pass around, what happens? The brighter it is, the better it is. It's the perfect analogy because that's what we do. We have a light source. His name is Jesus Christ. The word of God is what lights it up in our hearts, and then we go around and passing it to one another. Light has to be kindled. The fire has to be kindled. It goes out if you, don't, if you leave it alone. You stick it right there. After a while, it goes out. You have to kindle it constantly. You have to keep it there. If, if it goes out, then what do you have? You have darkness again. It's a perfect analogy because that's what the Christian life is. It needs to be constantly kindled. Jesus has a warning there. He says, if the salt, what? Loses its saltiness then it's good for nothing but to trample under the feet of men. Be trampled under the feet of men. See, see here's, here's what I wanted to say. You live in a day, you and I live in a day where Christianity is waning in the Western world. It's no longer what it used to be. It's slowly being pushed aside, Right? Almost all of what you know that you take for granted is only here because we still had a little bit of a Christian conscience in this society. I remember years ago, I was always broke and I could never fill my tank in my car. And one time I ran out of gas down Conway. So I'm driving, my car shuts off, so I pressed the press the clutch, put it in neutral, and I just let it coast. And in the corner of Conway and Curryford was a gas station, so I kind of let it coast, and whoop, whoop, went to the gas station, got out, like, pretending that nothing happened, and just filled right up. The guy in front of me looked at me, was like, oh, that's a really quiet car. <laughs> I, was, I ran out of gas back at the Cornerstone Apartments, but I was just coasting on empty. We ran out of Christian conscience 40 years ago. We've been coasting. And when that wanes and when that starts going away, you're looking at a very ugly, dangerous world very quickly. Let me, look, here's an example. There's uh, several uh, countries in Europe, and I believe now in Oregon, where they're considering the idea that if your health care can be a little bit costly, um, and you're old enough, then you may be given an option of being put to death. Right? Why not? I mean, we're, we're, if we're not made in the image of God, 
That's a religious, that's a Bible doctrine, right? If we are animals who evolved, I mean, we put dogs to sleep. I mean, why, you know, right? Now, why, why has, hasn't that happened yet? Well, we, we, we've been holding it back. But once that's out of the way, why not? Sounds like a good idea. Save money, right? See what I'm saying? See, the, the Bible applies to every area of life. You can't escape it. We, you know, politics, it's, politics is religion applied to government. That's all it is. If you believe life begins at conception, that is a biblical doctrine, well, that's going to influence what you think about abortion. Life beginning in conception, it's not science. Science corroborates it, but that's before science, that was in the Bible. That's a biblical doctrine. That is going to influence how you, what you think about babies in the womb. That's all it is. Once that's out, once we, we, we lost our saltiness here in America. We lost it years ago. We were trampled. When it means to be trampled on the feet of men, they step all over you and they keep on walking and leave you behind. That's, isn't that what's happened? Isn't that what's happened? Right? That's what's happened. The Christian values and ideas are no longer taken into consideration anymore in politics whatsoever. It's just whatever works, I guess, goes. See? So if we, if, 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 if we today in our generation... Not our parents' generation. Our parents' generations, they had somewhat of a Christian culture back then. Our generation does not. Their generation is completely not going to have it. So if we don't live the way that our ancestors lived, a holy life before the world, things will get very ugly very quickly. Very quickly. So we have a unique opportunity and challenge to figure out what it means to be a Christian today, now, in a hostile environment, like they were at the beginning, in a hostile environment. We don't have the luxury to sit around and assume that people know what it is to be a Christian anymore, or that people getting saved into our churches today already know what it is to be a Christian. That's, we don't have that luxury anymore. We have to figure out how to stand for God in this generation today boldly and valiantly like they did back in their generation because if we lose our salt, we'll be trampled under the feet of men and the world will walk right over us. That's happened before. That's why we had slavery for 400 years, justified by the Bible and Christians. Christians obviously abolished slavery, but for 400 years you had Christians who didn't care about it. They didn't have any light on that. We slaved peoples for hundreds of years. We can enter into dark times like that again. There's, there, we, there's, what else is preventing it but, but the scriptures and the people who live it? That, that's all. That's it. There's only, that's it. There's nothing else. So it's... it's when, when we, for the next 27 sermons on sanctification, 
we also we have to remind ourselves that whatever we learn about living a godly life has to always be rolled into our dealings with the world and society. And that's, that's where you, you, you have to live it out. It's, it's not you in a monastery at home. That's not Christianity. That's a mess. You have no idea what's happened in places like that. It's lived out in the world. Wesley always said you're, you're, you're in the world, but you're not of the world. You're left there to make the world better. That's, a, that's the Protestant message. So, anyways, uh, that's all I wanted to say. And um, um, it's, 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 it's kind of challenging because it's so easy to kind of go with the current, go with what it is. It's easier, simpler. And to swim against the current is kind of hard. It's very hard. And sometimes it might be so hard that you may drown or whatever. Um, but if we're going to, I guess this all came to a head to me because now I have a daughter. And, and there's a world that I'm going to have to leave for her. You see what I'm saying? And I, you, know, I, you cannot change everything, but you need to live so that when you leave this world, you did everything you could to leave it brighter for your children. And, and I fear that the world that she's going to have is going to be worse than the world that I was ushered into. And that's very real, at least to me. So, but anyways, um, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your scriptures. We thank you for all the saints that came before us. And they gave their lives, Lord, their reputations, their, their, their everything, Lord, to glorify you and to benefit their fellow men, Lord. Preaching the gospel, translating Bibles, going into places that, that, that in, in jungles or whatever, Lord. All for, for, for one thing, which was to glorify your name, Lord, and to preach salvation to men. I pray that you may help us that you may give us their boldness, Lord, and that you may strengthen us for us to carry out your message in this time in which we live, and that we may, in whatever shape we can, um, bring, bring glory to you and bring your message to the world so when we leave, it at least may be a little bit brighter than it was. Lord, we thank you. Uh, for the followers of the way, Lord, we thank you for your people, and we, we thank you for your word, especially, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.